You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and I'm really, really looking forward to our study in 1 Samuel. It's going to be a great study for all of us. It's really the study, the, the look at three particular characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. And it's kind of a sandwich, if you will. On, on the one hand, you have Samuel, who is faithful to God and just a, a man who, who loves God and, and who does exactly what God asks of him. You really read of nothing else. And then on the other side, you have David, who the Bible tells us is a man after God's own heart. And a guy that, yes, made a lot of mistakes. Terrible father. Uh, of course, an adulterer and a murderer. But the Bible says, nevertheless, he was a man after God's own heart. He wrote most of the Psalms. And, and you just see him pour out his heart to God. He's an incredible guy. But conflicted, like all of us. The pull of the flesh, the pull of the world, the pull of, of everything that is opposed to God... And also just wanting to serve the Lord and wanting to do what God would call him to do. And then in the middle of that, you have Saul. Who really, we read of nothing but him going after what seemed right to him. And doing what he wanted to do. And really having a heart for himself and not a heart for God. And, and so we, we have these three characters. And, and really men who... All had the same Lord, all had the same opportunities, and yet made different choices. And, and I think it's a great illustration uh, for all of us. And so uh, we're going to start getting into that uh, part of the book here that uh, details Samuel's life. And, and then, of course, we'll, we'll transition into Saul and then into David uh, later on in the book. The first thing that we're going to see in chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer really the first 10 verses. And this goes back to chapter 1. You remember that Hannah had prayed to the Lord that she would be able to have a son. And that if she could have a son, that she would dedicate him to the Lord. And that's exactly what happens. And she dedicates him to the Lord. And we see at the end of chapter 1 that she worships the Lord. And we talked about what real worship is. That it's more than just singing songs. And, and that's part of worship. And certainly that's going to be part of our worship in heaven. And it's important. And I think that, that we as a church could, could even improve in that area of, of passionate worship. When we have our times of gathering together in worship. That it's important. And, and certainly we've, we've come a long way as a church. I remember early on just thinking... Lord, what, what is going on with worship here? This is really kind of a bummer. And, and yet the Lord has really brought us a long way. But I, I would encourage you guys to enter into worship more. But that certainly is not what worship is in its totality. A lot of times that's what we want to make worship all about, just singing. And if that's what it was all about, it would be really easy to worship God. But it's way more than that. It has a lot more to do with your heart. Because you know as well as I do that you can sit in here and you can get involved in the moment, the emotions of it all, 
and just feel like, oh man, I am just worshiping God and, and you feel the goosebumps and you feel the, the energy and, and you kind of feed off of everybody else and then you can walk out those doors and just make horrible decisions that are absolutely opposed to God moments later. And so worship extends beyond the room, beyond the church building, and it, and it goes with us in our daily walk, in, in the decisions that we make, in, in how we talk to people, and how we treat people, and how we spend our money, in how we use our time, in, in how we work in our jobs, in how we treat our employer if we're employed, or our employees if we're a business owner. Those practical things are all worship, you guys. That's our worship to the Lord. And Hannah really illustrates for us what it means to worship. As she just offers her son, she obeys the Lord. She sacrifices to the Lord. She surrenders herself to the Lord. And then we see her now praying and responding to this act of worship. And it says in verse 1 that Hannah's heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And so we see Hannah rejoice. Now think about this. You've just offered your only child, this child that you've been wanting for so long. And again, let's be real honest here. It's easy to say, well, of course she would give her child to the Lord. That was the vow she made. But how many things have you said that you would do for the Lord that you never have done? How many times have you said, God, I'll never do that again, and then you do it again? Or how many times have you thought, Lord, if you'll do this for me, then I will do this for you. I will respond in this way. And then God answers that prayer like he did for Hannah, and you never hold up your end of the bargain. And so let's not just say how easy this would be for Hannah, or that you would, of course, do the same thing, because you know what? Oftentimes we don't. But here's Hannah. She does what she says she's going to do. She offers her son Samuel to the Lord. And remember, this wasn't like birth the child, you know, maybe a couple days, make sure everything's okay, and then hand it off. That would probably be somewhat easier. No, this was nurse the child, care for the child to the age of weaning, which was probably four or five years old. And so think about your kids, if you have kids. Think about when they were four or five, like my son's car, my son Carson's age. And just, here you go. See you later, buddy. And just walk off. It's not that easy. And I could see that Hannah's prayer would be something like, Lord, why do I have to do this? God, I know I said I would do it, but Lord, is there any other way? God, is, can I give you something else? But she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My strength, which is really what the horn is there. My strength is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. She's speaking of Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, who was really an enemy to her. She chastised her and castigated her and made her life miserable because she was barren. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Because you can imagine what would have happened here, right? is that she has this child and now she gives him to the Lord. And I'm sure Peninnah was just chastising her for that as well. 
Like, oh yeah, now you got to give your child away. You still don't have any kids. And she says, you know what? I smile at my enemies. Is that true of us? Is our heart so overflowing with the presence of God that we're able to smile at our enemies? I I wish that was true of me. And maybe it is periodically. But I I want it to be true all the time. That no matter how people treat me, that I can just smile at them. That I can just love them. That I can respond in grace. Because I'm rejoicing in the Lord. You know how when you're rejoicing in the Lord, when you're worshiping God... You, you can't be mad at people. You can't be upset. You can't get all fleshed out when you're worshiping God. She rejoices in the Lord. She praises the Lord. Look at verse 2. No one is holy like the Lord. God is set apart from his creation. Completely and totally set apart from his creation. He, he desired to relate to us and that's why he took on human flesh. But he's set apart from us. He's holy. That's what it means to be holy. He's set apart. That We don't have anything in common with God. It was impossible for us to relate to God. It isn't like that we just have a little bit less of what God has. No, we're totally opposed to God. We're enemies of God. He reached out to us. But there is no one holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. Nothing compares to the Lord. We can make comparisons and we can try to find illustrations, but there is none besides the Lord. There's no other gods that compare. And like the Israelites, we, we try to serve other gods. And we try to, to elevate things to the place of God in our life. But there is no other God besides Him. Have you found that out? Or are you still trying to serve other gods? And there's lots of gods out there to serve. And you've got to come to the conclusion that nothing compares to God. And until you do that, you will always be chasing something. You'll be chasing money, power, a career, a person, a relationship, your lusts, your greed. You'll always be chasing something. And you just look around. Just think about life. And just think about how people are basically on a pursuit of something. Every day when you get up, You're on a pursuit of something. And if your pursuit is not God, then there are gods in your life besides Him. But they will leave you empty. They will leave you absolutely unsatisfied. Nor is there any rock like our God. In other words, He never changes. He doesn't move. You know, you think about the Oregon coast. And you think about some of those huge rocks that are out there just off the shore that you can see as you're driving up the coastline. And and think about trying to move one of those. And yet, that is just a pebble. It's just a grain of sand compared to the Lord. There's no other rock like our God. He never changes, you guys. He's not capricious. He he doesn't respond wrongly and then change his mind. He, He doesn't make mistakes. He's never in error. He doesn't sin. He'll never let you down. And you and you think about all of the things in life that are so different than that. How much this world lets you down? People, your job, recreation. Sean and I were driving out of the mountains yesterday after we got the bighorn down. We're driving out and it's just this huge flat kind of country. You know, the mountains just rise up out of it. But down in the bottoms, it's just ugly and nasty and dirty and dusty and hot. And 
And we're driving out, and here's this, this RV parked out in the middle of nowhere with this old man, an old woman, you know, obviously retired, sitting out in the sun. And I just said, I said to Sean, I said, there, that's living the dream right there. You know, here they got their RV, you know, and I could just picture him like, hey, honey, where do you want to go? We can go anywhere you want. We're retired. We can do whatever we want. Let's drive out in the middle of nowhere to the dustiest, flattest, hottest part of the earth and sit out in the sun. That sounds awesome, babe. Let's do it. You know, it's just like living the dream doesn't get any better than this. I mean, what a letdown. That's, you know, retirement. Everybody wants to retire. And then, you know, I mean, obviously I haven't retired, but some of you have. And, and your bodies are getting old. And, you, you know, you only get 80% of your paycheck, you know, or less than that. And you can't even live on your retirement. Because you get the same and inflation goes up. You know, it's just a system that's working against you. And it, oh, can't wait to retire. Maybe it's, I, I can't wait to get married. Or I can't wait to have children. But all of those things, as awesome as they are, they still let you down. Whatever recreation. Oh, I can't wait for my vacation, you know. And I remember as a kid, going on vacation, it was never fun. It was always just like stress and my parents are kind of, you know, at each other's throat and, you know, getting everything ready and packing the car. And my dad's all, you know, on edge. And, you know, it's like, oh, this is fun. You know, and then the car, the car always broke down or we were stranded. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we, we were. One time we got shipwrecked on the Columbia River out in the middle of nowhere because this guy we were with decided just to drive the boat right up on the beach just ripped a hole in the back of the boat, and we were stuck there for two days. <laughs> and that's just one of so many trips, you know. Being out in the middle of the Puget Sound with my dad in a boat that's just floating freely because the motor won't run. That, I mean, that probably happened 15, 20 times. Out in the storm, just pouring down rain, you know, tents sliding down the mountainside. I could tell stories all night long. Of just vacation. So now when Andrew says, let's go on vacation, all those thoughts just flood through my mind, you know, of mm, let's not. It's, it's just never what you think it is. People live for Friday. Oh, can't wait till Friday gets here. And then they get drunk out of their minds. Well, if you were so happy for Friday to get here, why do you want to forget it? Verse 3, wow, okay. Talk no more, so very proudly let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord, the God of knowledge, the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. And so now she begins to, to recognize the stupidity of pride. Talk no more, so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. You know, most of us are prideful people. It, it's just rooted in our sin nature. And we have to fight against it, and we have to war against it. But here's the difference between humble people and prideful people. It's called what comes out of your mouth right here. Because you can have a prideful thought, but you don't have to articulate it. You don't have to say it. You don't have to elevate yourself above other people. You don't have to put other people down. And all of us have these thoughts, but it's having that filter from your brain to your tongue. It's a big deal. I don't know where you buy these filters, 
But everybody needs one. You got to get one. And, and I wish mine worked better. You know, a lot of stuff slips through. But talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge. What are you bragging about? What, you bragging about what you know? Hey, the Lord is the God of knowledge. You're bragging about your skills, your abilities. God gave them to you. You're nothing. And by Him, actions are weighed. If you want to know whether something is, is really spectacular or extraordinary, have the Lord judge it. Let Him be the judge, not you. The bows of the mighty men, it speaks of their strength, are broken. That thing that people take such great pride in, it's broken. And those who are stumbled, those who are weak, are girded with strength. And so there's comparisons going on. Those that, that seemingly have it all, in reality they have nothing. But those that are just broken and weak, they are made strong. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those that think they don't need anything, they've got it all. Actually, they're, they're empty. They're destitute. And that's why the Bible says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's a brokenness. It's a spiritual poverty that you have to come to a place of recognizing. That you have nothing to offer to God. That you're spiritually bankrupt. And those that are full, like the Pharisees, who thought they didn't need anything. They were righteous. They were holy. In fact, they have nothing. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. Those that hunger for God, they will be filled. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. Now remember, there is no king in Israel. And Hannah would have had no concept of a king. And so obviously she's talking about something else. And what she's talking about is the coming of the Messiah, the king of kings. Because she says, and exalt the strength of his anointed. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christ. She's speaking of the coming of Jesus prophetically. That that's the ultimate. The ultimate thing that they were looking forward to. That we, that we look back toward the coming of Christ. That God became a man. You guys, it's what the whole Bible is all about. It's one single unfolding story of God's plan of redemption, which is Jesus. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. But the child, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And so you think about this young child. Not exactly sure how old Samuel is at this point. But Elkanah and Hannah leave him at the temple. And Samuel serves. That's what ministered means. Samuel served the Lord before Eli the priest. You think about your children. And maybe you think, ah, oh, they're too young to, to serve the Lord. Or they're too young to understand. Well, here Samuel at a very young age was serving the Lord. Was ministering to the Lord. And I encourage you guys 
no matter how, what age your kids are, to involve them in your ministry, to, to let them see you serve, to, to allow them to see what it is to serve God and involve them in that. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt. And so now we transition from Hannah's prayer to the sons of Eli and their wickedness. They were corrupt. Literally, they were the sons of Belial, which means really that they were the sons of worthlessness. And they did not know the Lord. Here were two men who were raised in the family of a priest. In our context, they were raised in the church. In fact, their dad was a pastor. They heard the Bible read. Their dad worked at the church. They were always serving people, and yet they were corrupt. And so your parents' relationship with the Lord holds no bearing on your relationship with the Lord. Everybody comes to God personally and individually. And these guys never did. Even though they were raised around it, even though they were saturated with the things of God, they never had a personal relationship with the Lord. They did not know God. They probably, in a lot of ways, looked like they did. They could talk a good talk. They knew the Bible, I'm sure. But the fact is, they did not know God. And that isn't for us to judge as people. But there are countless people in churches, some in this church, I'm sure, countless people that attend churches every Sunday that do not know God. There are men that inhabit pulpits, that are pastors of churches, that are professors in seminaries that do not know God. Your position does not equate relationship. Your position in a church, your position in a family. How many times have you heard people say, oh yeah, I was raised in a Christian home. My uncle was a pastor. Seems like everybody's uncle was a Baptist pastor. You know, they know somebody that is, is a Christian that's related to them. And so they think that that is going to give them favor with God. No, you have to come through Jesus Christ individually and personally. It's a a heavy statement. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man, and notice it was the priest's custom. It, It wasn't what God had prescribed. It was their custom because God had already told them how to handle this situation with the offerings. They were given a certain portion of the animal. That was for the priests. You remember we studied that in Leviticus. They, they were given a certain portion for themselves to sustain themselves, to provide for themselves. But they had their own custom that when any man offered a sacrifice, so people would bring their, their lamb, their bull, whatever it was, they had their own custom that they would send the priest's servant. Notice they didn't do it themselves. They were so corrupt that they didn't even have the character to commit sin on their own. That's how bad it had gotten for these guys. We'll send somebody else to do it so that we can justify it. The priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take it, take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. This was their own custom. This was not prescribed by the Lord. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And so you can imagine that there was animosity brewing about this. Yeah, we bring our animal to the priest and the stinking guy just rips us off. It's a joke. Also, and so it, it was even worse, 
Before they burned the fat, when the animal was brought, the, the first thing they would do was offer the fat to the Lord. Because the fat was considered to be a delicacy. It was the best. And so they wanted to offer the best to the Lord. And so they would boil it and they would offer that fat to the Lord. And then after that, the priest was supposed to get his portion, a prescribed amount from certain places on the animal. And the offerer of the sacrifice was to get their portion. But that's not how they were doing it. No, in fact, they would stick their flesh hook in. They would take out as much as they wanted. But it even got worse than that. Before they burned the fat, the priest's servant, again, it was the priest's servant, would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. So now, we want our portion before it's boiled. Before it's offered to God, we want ours. Why they would want it that way? The only thing that makes sense is that they were probably taking the meat and selling it. And you can't sell boiled, cooked meat. And so they would take this raw meat, take it down to the market, and sell it for profit and pocket the cash. And if the man, the offerer of the sacrifice, said to him, you know, we really should burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. If the guy was to say, hey, you know what? Doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to offer the fat first? I mean, I'm no priest or anything, but, you know, isn't that what we're supposed to do? And then, hey, man, you can have as much as you want after that. I just want to do what's right before the Lord. These guys, Eli's sons, would answer him, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So these are just some great guys, just ripping off God's people. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. People just despised going to church. They despised offering their sacrifice. And how often does that happen today? People don't want to go to church because to them it's a scam. They've seen people ripped off and abused and hurt. They, they see that it's all about money. And, you know, it's, it's the give until it hurts. And, and it's the push for money. And it's a focus on money. And they just think, you know what? I don't even want to go. That's what was happening here. And these men, Eli's sons, were greedy. They, they were taking advantage of God's people. And we're going to see that the Lord does not look favorably upon this at all. Skip down to verse 22. We'll come back to verses 18 through 21. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So not only were they greedy, but they were sexually immoral. Here were these women coming to, to worship God, and they would take advantage of them. Now, I don't know all the details, and I don't know how it all came down, but they were using their position of authority to get what they wanted, whether it be money, whether it be sex, and it's a horrible thing. So he said to them, why do you do such things? This was Eli's question to his sons. Why, why does it matter why they do such things? The reason they do such things is because they're evil. They're sinful. That's a stupid question. Don't ask your kids that. Why do you do these things? The reason they do them is because they're sinners. You don't need to ask them, why do you do such things? And now he's going to kind of, you know, sound really good and make all kinds of great statements and kind of give them a lecture like parents do, but not really take action. Parents, 
We need to do more acting upon things and less talking. It doesn't do any good for you to blow up and to lecture and to say all of these things to your kids about what they should do and what they shouldn't do and then not take any action. See, it's real easy to lecture and it's real easy to get on your soapbox and to, to say all kinds of things. But where, where it takes commitment is to discipline and to act upon it. And Eli doesn't do that at all. Eli should have come down so hard on these men, these boys of his. But all he does is give them a lecture. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. I I can kind of hear in Eli's tone that he's concerned about their reputation. Who cares? But how often do you hear parents say that? You're making me look bad. Really? Is that what you're concerned with? That they're making you look bad? Come on. Who cares? What we care about and what we ought to care about is how we're representing the Lord. Are we misrepresenting Him? Are we making Him look bad? That's the issue. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Now, thankfully, we know the answer to that question. Because in 1 John chapter 2... We read that Jesus is our advocate, our defense attorney. He's the one that intercedes for us when we sin against others. But Eli, on the other side of the cross, doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't understand the forgiveness of the Lord. Who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Why should they? He doesn't do anything of substance. He just talks. And parents... If you just talk to your kids and you lecture and you give them all kinds of do's and don'ts, but you don't act upon it, they will not respect you and they will not heed your voice. And look at that last part of verse 25, because the Lord desired to kill them. They had so hardened their heart against God that God is now ratifying that decision and he is opposed to them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? I wonder if that's a question that the Lord would ask of us as parents. Why do you honor your children more than me? Why do you elevate your children more than me? Why do you allow them to dictate to you and not me? To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says... I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. There's judgment coming. Because Eli wouldn't take care of it, there's judgment coming upon his house. And upon his ministry. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place. Despite all the good which God does for Israel. 
and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Speaking of Samuel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to meet him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. And so all their greed and all their lust led to destruction. And everything they pursued was taken from them. And that's what will happen. If you pursue the things of this world, you'll end up with nothing. But if you pursue God, you'll end up with everything you've ever wanted and the Lord. I'm not saying in this life, but in the life to come. Satisfaction, fulfillment, peace, joy, riches innumerable. Maybe not here. Probably not here, but certainly in heaven. Everything you've ever wanted. And that's why the Bible says, if you store up your treasures in heaven, then moths nor rust can destroy it. It won't be taken from you. But if you store up your treasures on earth, it will vanish before your eyes. Where are you storing your treasures? What are you pursuing? It's easy again to dismiss Hophni and Phinehas and just say, you know, they're a couple of just total idiots, just punks. God-forsaken people. But if you read the Bible that way, you guys, you're totally misapplying the Word of God. If you read the Bible and you only relate to men like Samuel and men like Joshua and men like Joseph and Jesus and Moses, if that's who you relate to, then you're reading the Bible wrong. You need to relate to the Pharisees. You need to relate to Pontius Pilate. You need to relate to Hophni and Phinehas and see how their corruption can so easily creep into your own heart. This is you. This is me. Very, very easily. What are you pursuing? If it's not the Lord, it'll end in destruction. Certainly. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, verse 18, wearing a linen ephod. And so even as a child, he had this position of a priest, of a leader. Guys, it's never a factor to the Lord, a person's age, a person's experience. It's not a factor to the Lord. And, and as I get older now, I'll be 33 this week. It's crazy. I know for some of you that's not old at all. But um, as I get older, I don't get asked as much, you know, about how long have you been a pastor. I can't believe you're a pastor. It's kind of a bummer, really. I really wish, you know, people did that more. But when I was 25, 26, starting this church, people asked me that all the time. They wanted to know about my experience. They wanted to know where I came from. People don't care anymore. It's like, yeah, you look old. You're bald. You've got gray hair. You, you must have some experience, you know. Um, but age is never a factor to the Lord at all. And here's Samuel, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. How cool that must have been. You know, just anticipating, waiting to see her son and bringing him a robe every year, making it a little bigger. You know, I'm sure that was really cool. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord 
give your descendants, give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And so here's, here's something to think about. You can never outgive God. Here, Hannah gave her most prized possession, a huge sacrifice, and yet the Lord blessed her. The Lord blessed her with three sons and two daughters. Here she was barren all those years, and now she's got five children at home, six children all together. Amazing. And you guys, I'm not one to say, you know, give, give a dollar to the Lord and he'll give you ten. You know, that, that kind of stuff you see on TV, you know. Send in a hundred bucks and I guarantee you God will give you a thousand back. And I always want to say like, well, why don't you give me the hundred and we'll see if you get the thousand. Why don't we play it that way? I, I just always wonder that. But I'm not one to say that at all. But I will say this and I've seen it time and time and time again. When you sacrifice to the Lord and you give not out of convenience, not out of your abundance... But you give sacrificially to the Lord with a cheerful heart. You will never, ever miss it. I've seen it hundreds of times. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my parents' life. And when you make a decision that I'm going to give to the Lord, despite what my finances look like presently, and you give to the Lord sacrificially, it will always come back to you. You'll never be without and you'll wonder, I don't know how we're paying these bills. I don't know how we're covering this. But God is making it happen. And I'll tell you what happens on the other end. When you don't give to the Lord, you never have enough. You never have enough. Like Haggai says, your, your pants will have holes in them. It'll just be like the, the money is just falling out of your pockets. You, you never have enough. People say, well, when I... When I get my debt under control or when, when I get that raise, I'll give to the Lord. You won't. You won't give to the Lord. And it will be this cycle where you never have enough. It doesn't matter how much money you make. If your finances aren't dedicated to the Lord, you could be making ten grand a month and it won't be enough. You'll spend it on other things. And you'll be like, oh man, I don't have enough. I need more. Or you could be making a thousand bucks a month and be like, Lord, my bills are twelve hundred. I, I don't know how I'm going to pay these. And God says, yeah, but I, I want you to give to me. I want you to purpose in your heart to give to me. But Lord, I'm already $200 short. I didn't ask you that. I just said give to me and I'll make it happen. And you guys, I've seen it happen so many times. And a common question people have is, well, you know, I'm in debt. I've got, I've got credit card debt or I've got this debt. And I can't give to the Lord because I've got to pay off this debt. So what you're saying is, you got yourself into debt by buying things you probably shouldn't have. And so now you're not going to give to the Lord because you, you spent your money on yourself. Think about that. Think about how ridiculous that is. Now, I'm not saying don't pay your bills. You got to pay your bills. You got to do the right thing. What I'm saying is put Jesus first in everything that you do. And you will never, ever regret it. But if you don't, you will. You'll regret it. Well, you're going to heaven. Lord's going to... Bless you. He loves you. But you'll always be in debt. You'll always be wondering and fretting. And how am I going to pay this bill? And how are we going to make this happen? And you'll be in turmoil and there's no peace. And your priorities are out of control. And so you get to choose. What kind of a Christian experience do I want to have? God's given you 
a life of peace and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. It's over here. Or you can have turmoil and unrest and burdens and fear and desperation and unfulfilled living. You get to choose. And it all comes down to what are you pursuing? What, what are you running after? We sang tonight, I want to, to live, to live for your pleasure. I want to run, to run for your fame. What are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing? If it isn't Jesus tonight, then it is something else. And it is leading you somewhere. And it will ultimately be destruction. So let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. God, I thank you for Wednesday nights that we can just take big chunks of scripture and just see how it applies to our life. And looking at the Old Testament and these these great stories and these characters. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here tonight responding to your word. Not being hearers only, Lord, but doers of your word. God, we want to apply your word tonight. Whatever it is that you spoke to us, God, bring application into our lives for your glory. Jesus, may you be our passionate pursuit above all else. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.